Hello, this is Ebody NX, and welcome to the Candid Frame. This episode of the Candid Frame is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code Candid Frame. We also have the support of lynda.com, who with over 2,000 high-quality and engaging videos, provides a wide breadth of courses from beginner to advanced. lynda.com is there to help you learn creative, software, and business skills to achieve your personal and professional goals. To take advantage of their seven-day free trial, visit lynda.com forward slash the candid frame. That's L-Y-N-D-A forward slash the candid frame. We have spoken to hundreds of photographers over the last eight years. And if one thing stands out for me, it's the fact that many of these photographers created their own path to success. Though talent, luck, and connections certainly play their role, it's often what a photographer has decided to do that is unique to them that has helped distinguish them from their peers. That's been the case with today's guest, the legendary Ralph Gibson, who through a series of books, including his first, The Somnambulist, defined his own unique vision, which has inspired generations of photographers. Thanks to my friends at Leica Gallery LA, I had the opportunity to sit down with the photographer, and we began our conversation on his idea of a point of departure, which serves as the launching pad for all of his work. You know, Ibarian X, you have asked me the question. If there is a question in photography, it's no longer how to photograph. The question is what to photograph. And uh, once you determine what to photograph, the next question is where do you put the camera? Well, years ago, uh, when I was 21, fresh out of the Navy in art school, I was invited uh, on the strength of my darkroom technical abilities to be the assistant of Dorothea Lang. And uh, I worked for Dorothea for over a year before she indicated I could show her my photographs. And uh, I brought them to her one day, and she said, Oh, I see your problem, Raphael. She called me Raphael. She said, I see your problem, Raphael. You have no point of departure. I said, That's quite true, Dorothea. Uh, what is a point of departure? <laughs> and she said, Well, if you're going down to the drugstore to buy toothpaste, and you have your camera with you, because you are motivated, directed, and have an object, an objective, you might encounter a significant event and thereby photograph it. She said, however, if you return to the street corner and just hang out, you'll never get anything. Well, being, being wise and gifted and talented and ambitious, I went back to the street corner I ignored what she said, and I spent a few years on the street corner developing very slowly. Some years later, I'm in New York. I'm 27 years old, and I'm working on The Somnambulist, my first book of importance. And I realized that my camera had isolated a dream reality, and now I I need more pictures. And all of a sudden, the point of departure admonition rose to the surface of my consciousness, And I realized that now every picture I was going to make was within the context of it being part of the dream. I had, in fact, a point of departure. I was working on a 
project. If I had said, uh, instead of telling you that this was a dream sequence in which all things were real, if I had, instead of calling the book The Somnambulist, had I have opted to say 48 photos by Ralph, Mm -hmm. it would have not had the same impact that it did. So I have, to this day, to this morning, I took a picture of of a skull inside a swimming pool. And it's part of my current project, Political Abstraction. I have, for the last, I guess it must be now 40 years or so, 45 years, always had a point of departure. It's been the backbone of my career. There are many photographers, many of my colleagues love photography as much as I, work as hard as I, and have the same committed, passionate relationship to the medium, but insisted on being able to just drift around and respond. And they've got now boxes and boxes full of prints. Do you feel like you need to have that sort of clear focus even before you make those initial frames? Or like with that first incident that you you provided, do you find that you kind of discover what that might be after, or are you just... You won't make a shot until you have... have well, a that's a multiple-choice question. Uh, I'll just answer <laughs> it instead, <laughs> instead of taking none of the above. Uh, what really happens is this. Let's take, for example, my series Quadrants, where I decided all right. the pictures are going to be made at one meter of distance in bright sun with a 50-millimeter lens, usually at F16 on Tri-X back in those days. I never knew what the next picture was going to be, but I knew where to look for it. It was going to be at one meter distance from my camera. My next photograph, whatever it was going to be, was right in front of my face at all times. Now, I'm working on a thing called political abstraction, which is a much more difficult kind of image to to isolate, discover, pinpoint. But the concept is always there. I'm looking at you. The microphone is in front of my my face. I'm seeing this cup of coffee. I'm contextualize, is there a political abstraction in anything I'm looking at right now? So this is how I think. This is how I operate. I've done 40-some-odd books with the point of departure. If I took a nude this afternoon, it would be part of a, a lifelong project entitled The Infanta. If I, if I found myself in France, I, uh, if I took a picture tomorrow in France, in Paris or something, it would be part of my series L'Histoire de France. If I'm in, it, in Italy, Italia, and I see something I want, I say, does this factor into chiaroscuro? And mm-hmm. so, so, you see, I am not just at large drifting around uh, trying to look good with my Leica. I, <laughs> you know, when I, you talk about the Quadrant series, one of the things that it brought to mind for me was that having that focus really allowed you to know what to exclude from the frame because those those compositions are so strong not for all the things that they put into the frames but all the things you choose not to include in the frame and do you feel like that that particular series was that was that a lesson that came from from having that sort of focus of of, of saying I'm only going to shoot from a given distance and that the things that I choose to include in the frame have to work well op, you know optimally together and and that idea of what to exclude came to the fore what happens is this years ago i realized that if you're going to make a drawing you're going to take a pencil and a paper you're going to make a series of marks you're going to keep adding marks until you say the drawing is finished and essentially it's an additive process if i said i'm going to do political abstraction in this room now i would begin to to eliminate things 
that I don't want in the picture. For me, photography, composition, the frame is a subtractive experience. I want to be fully responsible for every square centimeter of information in my picture plane. I sign a print. I know what I'm signing. I'm not looking for happy accidents with the 28 millimeter lens in the background. I want to know what I'm seeing in front of my face. I want to take a picture of it. I want to then evaluate it to see what I saw. I want to measure my own perceptions, which are essentially the subject of my photographs. I'm not waiting for the, for the ax to fall, the bullet to be fired. Mm-hmm. When, when I get my perceptual configuration to a high enough point that I can take a picture, then, then I, then I know what I'm doing. Now, this came over a, a period of time. It, I didn't arrive at this process instantly, but starting in, in 1960, I had wanted to move closer to the picture, to the subject. I've just never been, uh, even in my early student work, uh, when I was uh, more of a documentary photographer gunning for Magnum, I, uh, uh, I still was a little bit too close to the subject. I hardly ever put a 35 lens on my camera. And when I do, I shoot it vertically. And you can't tell it's a 35. When you started working on, the, on that first book, The Somnambulist, from what I've heard, uh, it was a very interesting experience for you because you started considering not just the individual photographs, but the relationships of each of those photographs to each other, not only on two opposing page, but as a, a series series of images. Can you give me a sense in terms of what that experience was like the first time around? Because you produced a, a series of books since then, but what was sort of... Uh, That's a great question. Point of revelation? What happened was this. I, I moved to New York in 1967. I had done a book on the Sunset Strip out here, and uh, I, had, I had a set of moves. I, I was a camera handler. I, I, was, I knew how to do do sequences of photographs in a journalistic mode. And I wanted to be a photojournalist. I had a black Leica, so I bought a trench coat and I moved to New York. And, uh, <laughs> and I was received in Magnum immediately. They said, uh, we're not married, we're sleeping together, but let's see how it works out. And I worked out of the Magnum office for about three months and uh, bef- until I decided not to. But what happened was I was taking a kind of conventionally a journalistic documentary image that was good enough to get me work in New York. And we're talking about uh, 1967, 68, the magazines were still important. Uh, there was some space in magazines. You could develop a photo essay, etc. And I'd been a photographer for 10 years by then, but I decided I wasn't getting satisfaction. It just wasn't getting me off, even seeing them in print. I started working for New York Magazine the, the, the week that I arrived in uh, New York. Then I, then I met Robert Frank, and he said, well, I'm not doing stills, but uh, photography, but if you want, you could work with me on my films. And I started assisting Robert. He was the second great photographer I ever met, you know, after Dorothea. And I lost all interest in the narrative image, the documentary image, so-called notions of documentary truth. It just wasn't me. I still admire it. I, I think Salgado is the greatest photographer in the world. When, when, when it's good, it's awful good. Oh, yeah. But it wasn't me. It wasn't what I was looking for. And then I took a bunch of pictures one weekend out in a, a bunch of actors out in a lake, the hand through the doorway, the floating nude. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I shot 24 pictures of the Sonambulist in one weekend. 
uh, I had taken a quantum leap. It was a subconscious thing, and I didn't understand the work. I was living at the Chelsea Hotel. I put the prints up on the wall and was confounded. When you're a documentary photographer and you start taking pictures that are as surreal as a somnambulist, it, 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 it poses a series of questions to take a while to answer. Then Robert was in Mexico he, with his family, invited me to join him, and I went down there, and we drove around Mexico together. And when I came back a few weeks later to Chelsea, then I realized, bang, my camera, my Leica, had isolated a dream reality. Now, during this period, when I was making these photographs, I was reading, I was reading Rogue Grier and Marguerite Duras, and I was studying Via Lobos on the classical guitar, and I was moving in a generally abstract, solipsistic dimension anyway. And these photographs were simply reflecting my series of concerns in art and literature anyway. So once I realized this, then I heaved myself. I quit all work. I, I, I immediately went into sincere debt. I owed the Chelsea <laughs> Hotel nine months' rent. To uh -huh. Two of my three Leicas were in pawn. But I did nothing but work on a Cenabulous. Nothing. It was my baptism of fire. And it took me three years to get that book out, and I finally published it myself. I saw some video of, of you showing the, the, the draft copy of what you had and how you would, you know, cut out the type and cut out the pictures at different sizes. Talk, talk about the importance of having that sort of tangible, physical relationship with the images and the page in order to kind of discover what this thing was. You're asking all the very best questions. Well, one of the things is, is this. One of the reasons I was so dissatisfied in the commercial sector was that I, uh, they were always running the pictures the way they wanted. They were reinterpreting them. They were cropping them. They were doing this and that. I had done the Sunset Strip book, and I wasn't satisfied with it. I had a powerful yearning for autonomy. I wanted to be fully responsible. All the credit, all the blame. I chose the page size of the dummy of the Cenambulist. I chose the image size. I experimented. I, I bought a, a proof press, and I set all the type from individual characters, lead, lead characters. I wanted to have a full immersion in the all aspects of the creative process of bookmaking. And I insisted on it. It was autonomous, all the credit, all the blame. But, but no passing the buck. The art director mm -hmm. didn't screw it up. The, I supervised the lithography, uh, the binding, the whole thing. And so with this, I became essentially a bookmaker. And now I'd like to take the time to thank our sponsors. Your website, of course, is a showcase for your work, but it can also serve as a commerce site for selling your services and prints. Squarespace allows you to do that all on a single platform. A new feature that you'll find on the website manager gives you a snapshot of your sales by the number of units sold and revenue over time. You can view total sales across your entire store or filter by a particular product to see how it's performing. It's an amazing resource that provides you valuable information on the health of your business. Find out for yourself by taking advantage of their 14-day free trial. You don't need a credit card, just create an account and go for it. 
When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code CANDIDFRAME to get 10% off and to show your support for the show. Squarespace, everything you need to create an exceptional website. And you had no sort of training in terms of that. So it was largely intuitive uh, or was it influenced by, you know, all the other, the, you know, the other works that were sources of inspiration, the other, you know, the other artists, the other musicians, all these other people who you'd been absorbing in, that they sort of influenced that sensibility because you didn't have, you, you know, you weren't trained as an illustrator or anything like that. Or no, that but artist, in but, the Navy, for example, on the ship, where the photo lab was, there was also a five. Uh, there was a thirty-eight inch Harris lithographic press. So I had learned how to make halftone negatives. I understood ah, the lithographic okay. process. Now, as far as the actual sequencing and bookmaking, I was in total foreign territory. I was in over my head, but it didn't mean that that was a bad thing. It means essentially that was a good thing because I was in the process of reinventing the wheel. Mm-hmm. The, but the, the fact remains that the book in those days was, was the only way you could have a reputation. T- today, it's not the only way, but it still remains one of the most uh, uh, effective ways of dealing with one's photographs. If I have an exhibition, such as this exhibition here at Leica, I am showing you on the wall, the individual prints, how I photograph. But if I make a book... I'll be showing you how I think about my photographs. And these are, these are uh, different processes, but one is the extension of the former. The latter is the extension of the former. Uh, I'm very much involved in issues of semiology and, and, and critical theory and such, and all these like, ideas I get to examine as I lay out my books. When, when the book came out and people saw what you had done with it, would you say it helped you define to others what not only what you shot and how you shot it, but what you wanted to achieve with your photography and that that somehow led to opportunities that probably would not have existed otherwise? Well, what really happened was I went from total obscurity and anonymity and poverty to in a very small community, photography, I became known worldwide in about three months. Society changed its, 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 its relationship to me, not me to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was invited to give interviews such as this and, and have shows such as this and do workshops. And my life began. I was able to travel. And I was mightily encouraged by the response to the somnambulist. Uh, I used to carry the dummy with me everywhere. And I remember being on a train coming from Washington to New York, and and there was this woman with a beehive hair doing a moo-moo and, and the rhinestone earrings, and I, I had the dummy, and she's, I saw her looking at me, looking at it. So I said, here, have a look at it. She paged through it, and I said, what do you think of that? She says, very effective. I don't know what effect you're trying to get here, but it's very effective. <laughs> <laughs> so I knew then and there that at my most abstract, I was not a misunderstood artist. Okay. I've never felt I was a misunderstood artist. I could try anything I wanted to do. Not that I care what people think about what I do. I do it for myself first and then market it later. 
But I have the, the reason I didn't work commercially for the first 40 years was I didn't want somebody else. I didn't want to have to second guess somebody else's response to my photographs. I make my books and my pictures and I put them out there and on a take it or leave it basis. And I'm just lucky that there's a few people around who respond favorably. Yeah. Tell me about the, the second book, Deja Vu. Um, well, Deja Vu came out of, uh, out of the sense of encouragement from the response to the... It released a tremendous amount of energy, uh, the response to the Sonambulus. And Deja Vu was another kind of feeling that you have. You, you know you've just had one. It's fading so fast you can't stay in it. Deja Vu is more of a memory of a feeling you just had. But it had a lot to do with the space between the pictures. You know, the hand with the gun and the guy sitting on the yeah, pier. Uh -huh. Well, by scaling the picture on the right larger than the one on the left, uh, the space, the two photographs produce a third effect. It's like a musical uh, overtone. Two images produce a third effect called the spread. You know, you're talking musically, and I know that's a big part of your other passion is music, and correct. In, in your, you're talking about photographs not in, in just a two-dimensional pattern, but in sort of three-dimensional. Images have as much space as a song or a, or a composition has. Is is that something you're always striving for in your in your photographs to have that sort of resonance? Well, there's a there's a there's a, there's a structure there's a series of structural principles that informs music. And the golden means, which is the 24, 36 centimeter proportion of that the Leica uses, 35 millimeter film, which I will have used forever and will continue to use forever. The, this proportion was forged by the ancient Greeks, along with the along with the classical modes in music. The same set of geometrical ideas and proportions inform both music as well as as uh, as composition. Uh, the Renaissance extended these ideas tremendously, but I am completely uh, uh, under the sway of, of this persuasion. I work within uh, within this, this this kind of architectonic, both sonically and visually. So many of your images are, are vertical. Is that is that part of that that aesthetic about that, that sensibility? If you if you look at something with two eyes, you're experiencing a horizontal composition. Uh, and that's why so many photographers love uh, shooting horizontally with the 35 millimeter lens, which immediately implies narrative and allegory. We're looking at this picture of the of the roller coaster in the in the high tide, the storm. Uh, that every picture tells a story. If you close your eyes and look at something with one eye, which is essentially the experience of the rangefinder. Uh, you're you're compacting things into a, a, a vertical format. I find that I can get much greater drama and intensity, visual intensity and compositional dynamic in the vertical format. I have no interest in the horizontal format because it triggers references of response, which I'm attempting to avoid. Hmm. Once in a while, I would say about 1% to 2% of my pictures are uh, uh, horizontal, but my strongest ones are not. But, but tell me about the, 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 your experience when you're photographing something. Is it, is it you see something, you react to it? You Listen, it's not a multiple choice. Here's what happens. The key word here is solipsism. In Greek philosophy, solipsism, a thumbnail definition, is how you feel determines how you perceive reality 
Therefore, the only thing that's real is how you feel. That's the backbone of a logical positivism and a lot of philosophies. Mm-hmm. Now, this is great for the artist in his studio, the photographer. This is not good for the general or the brain surgeon. They have to be much more pragmatic. Okay. So the truth is, I can give you, in any one of my photographs that succeeds, an accurate barometric reflection of exactly who and what I was at that instant. There is nothing in my life that will give me such an accurate self-reflection, something that I can so absolutely trust and know is me. Now, when you're as solipsistic as I am, sitting around in my ivory tower studio, this is navel-gazing to the 10th power, but I am working at all times in an introspective mode. And that's my relationship to the medium, which means I hold the medium in a very sacred fashion. That's why I didn't work commercially for many years, because, in fact, when I wanted to sell my soul, nobody wanted to buy it. As I started to discover things about myself through the medium, I became much more sacrosanct in my protection of its purity and intention and didn't want to compromise this because Mm -hmm. I could play for higher stakes. I could find out things about myself I didn't know. In The Somnambulist, there's a picture of a burning beauty parlor. Yeah. Well, my parents divorced, and my mother took her share of the house and became a beautician and opened a beauty parlor and died in a hotel fire. I didn't cry at her funeral. Some years later, I'm walking down the street in New York, 6th Avenue, and I see a burning beauty parlor, and I am magnetically drawn towards this event. And as I'm taking these pictures, a plethora of catharsis of tears comes out, And I realized that I had a different relationship to photography than I thought I had. Now, that's the answer to your question, Um, in my case. (laughs) Do you find that that photography is the means by which you tap into that inner part of yourself? Well, it's it's, it's been the principal way, but I was always... uh, I I started playing the guitar when I was 13, and I, I had a lot of unanswered questions about my, my role as a musician because I was so committed to photography. But I never stopped playing. However, I never studied. And I built a 50-year thick wall of, of defense against learning theory and harmony. And about 10 years ago, I, I started uh, intensely studying uh, musical history, theory, and harmony, and composing. And now I make videos and I perform in front of the videos and... Uh, uh, I compose music, and you know it's 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 a big production because the video has to. I thought I was going to find out the relationship between photography, my photographs, and music, but that quickly moved away from the still image in a video to a moving image in a video, because because motion has a horizontal linearity not unlike time, the temporality of music passing along a horizontal line of time. You know, with with. Self-publishing and all these different means of people being able to produce books for themselves. Uh, it's a little more accessible uh, than it was before. Uh, the tools um, are a lot lot easier than, than they used to be. Yes. Uh, how, how has all that changed in terms of how this you approach books? This is the golden age. This is, this is the golden age of, of technology. Uh, I can compose and record my own my own. Uh, I can make my own videos. I can make my own soundtracks and logic. I can can put them together, edit them together. This is like being able to curl 10,000 pounds with your left arm. 
yes, this is, there's no excuses. You know, if I, if you want to make a film, go ahead and make it. You don't need $10 million. Yeah. Sure. And the same thing is true. Uh, uh, reproducing a book, sending it to the lithographer, uh, digitally laid out and scanned and separated is a lot easier than it used to be. Tell me about the, the mono book that was um, a, one of your more recent books about of that. It's a beautiful book, and it was derived from images that you had taken with the, uh, the Leica mono that... Uh, well, Leica came to me. You know, I had been... I just came up... Uh, I had just returned from... Uh, Australia, where I had stood in the largest museum in the country, saying that that I will never shoot digital. The history of photography is etched into the emulsion of black and white film, and digital lacks an epic proportion. I really waxed on, and I came back and like approached me with this camera and said, "Would I try it?" And I, I made a very stringent set of rules and fail safes and ways out if I didn't like it. <laughs> But I went out, uh, I, I, I was talking to my shrink and I was saying, here, the, the camera just arrived this morning. I have this camera in my hand and I, I, I just don't know. I've got 55 years in the dark room. This is a huge identity crisis. And, uh, and I left her office and I took, I barely knew how to put, shoot the camera. And I took that picture that's on the cover of Mono of the man holding the bicycle. Mm-hmm. And I looked at it and I said, wow, that picture kind of looks like it could have been taken by me. You know, I, the, the first shutter release, I all of a sudden get a, get a usable picture. And I'm saying to myself, you know, maybe I was wrong about digital. So Mono is, is a book of showing a, a guy learning how to shoot digital, basically. But the truth is, after all the things I said against the digital space, I am now, I realize I'm eating my words but I'm pleased to say they taste very good. (laughs) (laughs) There comes a time in every photographer's journey where they want to do something beyond the technical. They want their images to be more than just f-stops and shutter speeds. For some, they want to use their camera to tell a story. You can learn just how to do that with a new course that you'll find only at lynda.com. Shooting a photo essay in 60 minutes is a course taught by photographer Paul Taggart, which provides some wonderful insight into how to use your gear to tell a full and complete story. You can experience this for yourself and watch over 2,000 quality videos for free for a limited time. I've worked out a deal with lynda.com to provide you with unlimited access to the entire library for free for seven days. Visit lynda.com forward slash the candid frame to use it for a week. That's lynda.com forward slash the candid frame to start your seven day free trial and help support the show. So uh, how has digital changed, changed the way that you shoot? Because you, you, there's an interesting thing that you, 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 uh, I read about. You, uh, you said that with photography, first you learn to practice photography, and then you learn, learn to serve photography, and then you sort of become photography. And, and part and parcel of that was that I got was this idea that the camera becomes uh, as much a part of you as any other physical physicalness about about your body but when you transition to 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 digital you know i guess you're you're having to relearn that thing did that sort of take you back a 
uh, a step or was it just, was it sort of a, a fluid thing or did it, do you know what I'm, do you know what I'm yeah, asking? Yeah, I get the question. Yeah. Uh, here's what really happened. As I, as I mentioned in the, in the preface, uh, I could describe the moon to you in English or I could describe it to you in French. And there, it would be the same moon with a slightly different language, but it's still the same moon. Now, the strength of the rangefinder has always been that, in my case, I experience a perceptual act. I put the camera in my eye, take the picture, remove the camera, and continue my perceptual act. It has never been putting a putting a single lens reflex to my eye with a zoom lens walking around the world until the camera discovered a picture. Mm -hmm. This is what people are doing largely in the, in the selfie in the digital space. They're letting the camera take a picture for them. I've always used the Leica as a quadrant, as a way of, of showing me what I am seeing. The camera is not an extension of my perceptual act. It is part it is one part of several that go into, into the idea of, of an image. Literature. People say, how do I become a photographer? I say, you've got to become cultured. Study cin cinematography, study literature, study architecture, study language, study art history, uh, study choreography. All these things go into your sensibility, enhancing your sensibility, which then creates what we'll call a photographer. I've been privileged to know all the great photographers of my time. I mean massively privileged. It's the best thing about my career is that I sat at the feet of all the great masters. And one by one, it became perfectly clear to me that these were all essentially 19th century gentlemen of great acumen and knowledge. So, so the camera is like saying, my Mont Blanc is how I write my great novels. But, but, it, but it's not. <laughs> mm. it's, it's one aspect of it, you know. Yeah, you, you talked about you don't care what other people think about your work. But when, when you're sharing your work, particularly in, in an exhibit, we've talked about how you control the experience of, of, of your work through the book. But when it comes time for your work to be exhibited, what, or what approach do you take in terms of being able to control that experience within a given space like, like here or elsewhere where you have some... That's a good question. Well, you know, uh, I started showing uh, mostly uh, in, in Europe around 1970, and I didn't show in New York. I held back until I, I was invited by Leo Castelli to have a show in his gallery, which, which, was, which was a smart move. But uh, I went into show quadrants, and I, I started hanging the pictures, and I couldn't get it to happen. And Marvin Heiferman, who was the director then, threw them up on the wall in about 11 minutes, and it just the show just clicked, came coalesced, mm -hmm. came together. And I realized then and there that when it comes to the exhibitions, the person who spends 24-7 in the gallery, he or she knows better how to hang the work. And as I was saying to Paris today... Uh, looking at my exhibition, she saw these, these relationships that were different than the ones I had intended when I took the pictures. And I liked these relationships very much. I, I was effusive in my complimenting her for the way she installed and what she saw in the pictures. Now, 
generally speaking, my position is that nobody's going to spend as much time looking at my photographs as I am. I put them on the studio wall and I live with them for months or years. By the time I've sent a photograph out into the world, I've seen everything that's in it. But once in a while, somebody really good in a space such as this mm-hmm. comes up and, and makes a, uh, a, 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 a very interesting reinterpretation of the work that is, in fact, informative to me. That, that living with the photographs, I think, is something that I, I really believe in, having them posted up on the, on the wall and looking at it every day. When you're working, say, on a, on a book project, do you have some sort of anchor images that are like, okay, these images are like mm-hmm. the best of the best, and the images that I'm going to put up there are either going to have to be as good as that, if not better. Is that the way it works for you? Well, the way it works for me is this. At the end of every project, I've got a few prints left over that are harbingers of the next project. They're kind of messages from the subconscious that indicate where I'm going to go next. And I get hooked by that idea, and I look at these pictures, and they inform subsequent efforts. But what what's really interesting about your question is another issue, which is one of the reasons I didn't work like working as a photojournalist is you make magazines and they look at the picture, turn the page. You're basically grinding out ephemera. And one of the key issues in photography, the hardest problem, the biggest issue in photography is staying power. You know, these automatic cameras, we call them PhD cameras, push here, dummy. Anybody mm-hmm. can take a picture. But get one that you can put on the wall for five or ten years without getting tired of. Staying power in, in, in a photograph essentially known as content of some form or another is very hard to imbue into, into a two-dimensional image, which is why Eddie's picture of the Viet Cong getting his brains blown right. out, uh, uh, that's got a kind of staying power that's based on a, a set of sociopolitical concerns. But to try and uh, just take a picture of uh, the corner of this, of this bolster, this hassock here, this chair, and make it, make it have the same a visual staying power is, is, is a great event, is an enormous challenge. Well, th- th- that picture that you did for the Quadrant series of the, the priest and the collar and the chin is one of those images for me. I mean, I, that image from the first moment I saw it till now still mm-hmm. resonates with me. And if I were to explain why it is, I'd be hard-pressed to explain what it is. It just has that something-something. It has that little bit of... You know, little magic that just just sticks with me. Like Mary Ellen's Mary Ellen Mark has a shot of a young girl sitting in a in a low inflatable pool smoking a mm-hmm. a cigarette. I know that yeah. shot for me is just has it. So w- let's talk about that photograph that you took. Sure. What what is it about that shot that that captures what you just expressed in terms of a, a shot that continues to resonate over time and isn't just easily forgotten. Well, that, that's an interesting question because for many, many years, I consider that to be the one photograph that if I were to be remembered for one image, that would be it. It solved many, many, uh, issues for me. It was, the frame was incredibly compressed. The edges of the frame were pushing in on the subject. It had lots of geometry. It was extremely minimal, but it, it, it had just enough uh, subject matter. Social anthropological subject matter was a priest. I was raised Catholic. I'm, uh, uh, I am still an angry, lapsed Catholic, you know. <laughs> and uh, so I got uh, that picture. I've been told uh, during that the Vatican wants to buy the, the, that print, and I've been waiting for the letter from the Vatican. It would be a big 
jewel in my crown <laughs> if I could get that. Because I'm in a lot of collections, a couple hundred. But the thing is, how many, how many photographers are in the Vatican collection? So I'm hoping they buy it. In fact, I'd give them a print. But the, uh, the, the fact is that that picture also, it's a black and white photograph. But it also, if the sky were gray, it would essentially be a color photograph. Mm-hmm. It's also shot one-to-one, one, a 1620 print of that is about the size of the of the actual priest. So it's doing an awful lot of things simultaneously. And until a, a, a recent picture, 2005, I consider that to be my strongest picture ever. So it's right up there. You you picked a you picked an image of of, of which I could continue to wax on indefinitely. Yeah. Do you have an idea of why is it? Because you you've described different elements that exist within the shot that make it a strong shot but you know there there are a lot of shots that are very very similar they're very not similar in terms of content but in terms of graphicness in terms of tonality in terms of framing but that don't don't resonate for long periods of time with that shot is it, is it something that just isn't definable or do you think it No is? I can define it it has to do with uh, with aspects of formalism you see I am essentially a formalist I photograph I'll take anything and I could make, I'll attempt to make a, a, a strong photographic experience of it based on my perceptions, which is really means that my concerns are essentially formalist. If you take the position, the philosophical position of the Museum of Modern Art, they are modernist, which means the camera is totally objective and the photographer is not to introduce his personality. And you have a great Walker Evans kind of photograph. Where the camera renders. This is modernism is started around 1930. It's a very Weston was actually Paul Strand was the first great modernist, you know, coming out of pictorialism. So you have modernism. And then my generation, starting around the late 60s or 70s, we started seeing a lot of subjective uh, input to the content of the image. And in my case, that became more and more of a formalist set of concerns. And the priest is kind of an interesting extremely harmonious balance of, of severe formal construct along with just enough allegorical content to, to resonate in such a manner that we'll call staying power. Well, now that you're shooting digital, are you, you're, you're printing your photographs on, on an inkjet or are you using an internet and, and, and I've tried it all. And, uh, and, and there's no doubt about it that the silver gelatin substrate, Tends to render space a certain way that is that the, that the that the archival pigment inkjet thing doesn't. But I am willing to I am willing to sacrifice that. It's a small percentage of, of advantage. I'm willing to sacrifice. I've I've done lambdas and I've done those internegative yeah. things too, printed on silver gel, and I've tried it all. But you know, I'm 75 and I have a lot of work that I have yet to do. And I don't have time for the dark room, and it's not worth it to me. I love, I, I, I'm like somebody who's got a second lease in life. I, I'm doing a book a year now. And I'm, wow. I'm, I'm yeah. developing at an exponential rate in terms of my usual ratio. And so uh, I'll take whatever substrates around. It's always been about perception and idea. Uh, I, I've been in pursuit of an intellectual, intellectual content that's all I really care about. I'm not selling substrates. I have 10,000 prints in my studio that I made myself. 
all silver gelatin and fine and available for interested purchasers. <laughs> but the truth is that I learned how to speak that language. Now I'm really enjoying learning how to speak another language. Okay. Well, the last question that I ask each guest is that I ask them to uh, suggest another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Well, if you really want to get an interesting take on the relationship between photography and music, uh, I would propose Andy Summers as a, uh, as a, probably the only person who could who could clarify that murky dimension fantastic thank you so much Thanks for joining me for another episode of the show. Remember that my latest book, Portraits of Strangers, is available for purchase. And for loyal listeners of the show, you can enjoy 30% off the ebook or any other book or DVD that I've produced, including my first book, Chasing the Light, Improving Your Photography Using Available Light. Click on the link on the show notes and use the promo code PORELLO, that's P as in Paul, E-R-E-L-L-O, to receive your discount. The Candid Frame is brought to you by the generous contributions of listeners just like you, as well as the work of our audio engineer, Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.